some words from the prophet Micah. In the days to come, the mountain where the temple stands will be the highest one of all, towering above all the hills. Many nations will come screaming into it, and their people will say, Let us go up to the hill of the Lord, to the temple of Israel's God. He will teach us what he wants us to do. We will walk in the paths he has chosen. For the Lord's teaching comes from Jerusalem. From Zion he speaks to his people. He will settle disputes among the nations, among the great powers near and far. They will hammer their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nations will never again go to war, never prepare for battle again. Everyone will live in peace among their own vineyards and fig trees, and no one will make them afraid. The Lord Almighty has promised this. So let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Hopeful God, as we come together again, each from different places, we are glad that you are here waiting for us, arms open wide in welcome, drawing us to yourself. Joyful God, we have enjoyed good things which have made us smile and gladden our hearts. So we want to say, Thank you for all the blessings we have received. Grace-filled God, we haven't always got it right. We have said things that make us sad or done things we wish we hadn't. So we want to say sorry for the things that make you sad. Gentle God, who welcomes us just as we are, who believes us when we say we are sorry, who wipes away our tears and helps us begin again. We want to say just one please. Please help us to learn to love like Jesus and to live our lives for you. Amen. Our first reading this morning is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, reading from verse 6. 2 Thessalonians 3, from verse 6. We listen for the word of God. Now we command you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from believers who are living in idleness and not according to the tradition that they received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you, and we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labour, we worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you. This was not because... We do not have that right, but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command. Anyone unwilling to work should not eat. 
For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. And our Gospel reading is from Luke, chapter 21, reading from verse 5. Luke, chapter 21, at verse 5. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, The days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They asked him, Teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And he said, Beware that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first. But the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and plagues. And there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defence in advance. For I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed. Even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. There are some Bible passages that make you go, ooh, uh, misses, aren't there? And I think those were amongst those. <coughs> Whilst I was on my sabbatical, I spent a weekend in Bath, learning from a city centre Baptist church about their approach to mission and to ministry. On the Saturday, I had some free time, and I went along to Bath Abbey. Like many extremely old places of worship, it's in constant need of repair and refurbishment, and some parts of it were cordoned off for safety. Ladders, 
scaffolds and barriers had been erected in some places, but the abbey remained open, both for visitors to look around and for regular worship. I had a very enjoyable time wandering around, admiring stained glass windows and elegant side chapels, reading the memorials and lighting candles to remember friends whose life circumstances were difficult, when suddenly a microphone crackled into life and a voice invited those present to be still, to pause and join in an act of prayer. I slid into the nearest available pew and sat down. Most people stopped talking. Many stood where they were, whilst others sat or knelt to pray. Behind me, I heard people talking in a very loud voice, in a language I didn't understand. Oblivious to what was going on, these tourists continued to take photographs and to exclaim at the beauty of their surroundings. My first reaction was annoyance, and then bewilderment, and then curiosity. How come they hadn't sensed that moment? How had they not been aware that this was still an active house of prayer and worship, as well as being a wonderful tourist attraction? As the time of prayer drew to a close and the words of the Lord's Prayer were intoned in countless versions and languages, we had sins, trespasses and debts in the English language version, apart from all the others, there was, despite the distraction, a sense of unity, that this was, after all, a house of prayer for all nations. This was a working church community at prayer, a church that welcomed in strangers to enjoy its heritage of worship and of prayer. Now, of course, Bath Abbey is in no way unique in this respect. There are beautiful churches, cathedrals and abbeys the world over to which people are drawn out of curiosity to admire the architecture and the art, to drink in the ambiance, even when the faith that inspired them is not shared. So why am I telling you this story? I do so because this is the kind of situation that forms a background to the gospel story that Luke tells us as part of his Holy Week narrative. Known as Herod's Temple, the second temple, built some five centuries earlier under the leadership of Zerubbabel, has been vastly extended, rebuilt and redecorated by Herod the Great. This is one of many elaborate projects he has undertaken, including theatres, amphitheatres, hippodromes, that's places where horses run around, and temples for various Roman deities. He even inaugurated a five-yearly games event, probably a bit like the Olympics, in honour of Caesar. It's fair to say that Herod was a proud, ambitious man who sponsored highly visible projects in an attempt to secure favour. So given that this is what Herod was like, perhaps it's rather surprising that the Jewish religious authorities had been able to insist that the rhythm of sacrifice and prayer must continue uninterrupted during that work. 
Spiritual disciplines must be undisturbed and the sacred profane boundaries which they recognised must be maintained. So Herod built outwards, doubling the size of the temple which dominated the city. And we can be pretty sure that people flocked to admire it. To start with, of course, there would have been devout pilgrims coming to Jerusalem to seek the services of a priest in fulfilling religious obligations. We know too from the stories we read in scripture that there were rabbis and Pharisees and Sadducees and other religious groups who loved nothing better than to sit and debate theological ideas in such an amazing place. And there must have been visitors who came just to see this wonderful building out of sheer curiosity. Had there been a C1 equivalent hop-on, hop-off tourist bus in first century Jerusalem, I'm fairly sure it would have stopped at the Temple Mount. Had they been invented, postcards and souvenirs undoubtedly would have been sold. Just as it is with many cathedrals and abbeys today, the temple then was a huge visitor attraction and Herod's ambition lay behind it. The whole of Luke's Holy Week story is centred very firmly in the temple and its environs. Already he is told how Jesus drove the money changers and animal sellers out of the outer courts on Palm Sunday. And already he has debated with various religious groups, discussing such diverse topics as, should you pay your Roman taxes? And is there such a thing as life after death? He's watched people bringing their offerings into the temple, and he's commented to his friends about the widow who made her offering of two small coins. I wonder if that's the moment when he started to hear voices people around him saying the first century equivalent of, wow, look at all that gold. Isn't that stone just beautifully carved? This is an amazing place. And it's all dedicated to the Jewish God, you know. The contrast between this opulence and the people looking around is in stark contrast to the widow's offering. That doesn't need any explanation. But what Jesus goes on to do is change direction totally. It kind of boils down to this. We'll make the most of it because it's not going to last. This beautiful building will be gone, demolished. All the stones are going to be torn down and smashed up. What? They're just shocked. They're horrified. What what do you mean? When, When will this happen? This isn't just a building. This is the ultimate symbol of their faith. Here in God's chosen city, at God's appointed place, is God's house. And right in the heart of this, the Holy of Holies, is the closest that anybody can get to God. And that's just one person one day a year. To destroy it isn't just destroying a place of worship because by then synagogues were increasingly serving that function in local areas. But actually it would be hugely symbolic, cutting to the core of their identity and their understanding of how God related to them. So his followers started to question Jesus. 
How will we know this is going to happen? What sign will God give us to warn us of this impending tragedy? What follows, I have to say, is in a rather ad hoc fashion. And it's a very bewildering catalogue of suffering and persecution that will occur either before or after the temple is destroyed. It's not neatly in some kind of chronology. Wars will arise between nations. Natural disasters of all kinds will occur. Those who choose to follow Jesus can expect to experience rejection, persecution, and even execution. And if we'd read to the end of the chapter, for which you'll be very grateful we didn't, it would have got worse, with more horrific events listed as the end of time draws near. Curiously enough, we're not told how Jesus here has responded to this catalogue of tragedy. The gospel just carries on uninterrupted, with Jesus dividing his time between the temple where he teaches and the Mount of Olives where he prays as Holy Week unfolds. We're just left to wonder what on earth any of that might mean. So let's move forward in time. Probably around about 20 years. So we're now after the events of Calvary. The Christian church has started to establish itself in various parts of the Roman Empire. And the congregation at Thessalonica, to which Paul wrote somewhere around about 50 AD, if the scholars are right, was probably quite typical in its thinking and expectations about faith. They had a heavy emphasis on a form of eschatology that was convinced that Jesus' turn was imminent, and certainly within their own lifetimes. And as a result, Christians had fallen prey to precisely the wrong-headed attitudes that Jesus had spoken of before his death. If you can remember in that reading we heard from Luke 21, Jesus said to his followers, many will come in my name claiming to be me, or saying, the time is near. But fearful of missing out, thinking that Jesus was back sometime very soon, some of them had actually become idle. They sat around, piously waiting for Jesus to arrive, and playing no part in providing for their own needs, or of contributing to the life of the church. With a phrase that has been famously quoted out of context and recently by politicians, Paul says very clearly, those who will not work will not eat. It would be helpful if our politicians could read their Bibles and find the context of that one, wouldn't it? But what Paul is saying is there's no place in the church for parasites. No place for those who live off the labours of others, thinking that they should sit back and wait for Jesus to come along and whisk them up to heaven and wind up history. That's, that's not at all how Paul understands the church. He said you shouldn't be idle. You should employ your time. You should be doing the stuff of the church. And in, in his particular context, he was saying you should be working. You shouldn't be sponging off other people. I don't think we've got any sponges in here, but that's what Paul was saying. Were we to travel on in time, beyond the scriptures, it gets worse. Around about 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, along with the sacking of Jerusalem. And the ritual sacrifices that the Jews observed have never been observed since. Judaism was forced to adapt to a new world order. 
kind of hard to imagine that, isn't it? The place you've always had as your Holy of Holies gone, and you have to adapt to that new world. Members of the early church were persecuted and worse, and yet Christians and Jews continued to go on believing, continued to hope. 2,000 years, near enough, have gone past since then, and the church has grown and declined. It's seen revival and it's seen relapse. Once a very powerful institution which boasted beautiful buildings and had huge influence, the church finds itself increasingly sidelined or ignored in the public arena. Vilified for its past misdemeanors and beset by doctrinal arguments and schisms, it is seen as irrelevant or archaic by the majority of ordinary people. Less than 10% of people in Britain will be found in a church or other place of worship on a Sunday. Tourists, of course, still find their way into churches and cathedrals, and they love to look at the architecture and the art. But increasingly, the profound symbolism is unrecognised as they are increasingly dissociated with the stories of faith. They just don't know what it is they're looking at. So actually, it's not so surprising that when a microphone crackles into life and a man in a black cassock with some, a white collar and some white bands says, let's pray, that people don't know what he's on about. We read our newspapers or watch or listen to the news and wars and natural disasters are an everyday occurrence. We can feel overwhelmed to the point of helplessness in trying to make a response. There are still parts of the world where Christians and people of other faiths are persecuted, arrested and even executed for their beliefs. And whilst I would challenge anybody in the UK to say we are persecuted for our faith, because we're not, it isn't always easy to be open about it, even within our own families and our own friendship groups. Ridicule and rejection are real possibilities. And there are always those tough questions to which we just can't find satisfactory answers. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why has there been another natural disaster affecting the Philippines? Why do the poorest of the poor seem to suffer more and more? 2,000 years, roughly, since Jesus warned his followers that the temple would be destroyed and spoke of struggles ahead, nothing's really changed, has it? Or has it? The church is still here. There are still people sufficiently convinced that the way of Jesus is good news, in fact, the best news for a world distorted by human sin and finitude. And even with no identifiable holy of holies, worship continues, and God's presence and activity are discerned by believers. Despite all the negatives, despite the errors of the past, and we do need to name those and regret them, And despite the challenges of the present, something convinces Christians not only just not to give up, but to live full and expectant lives. And that something is hope. So 
what is this hope that gives us the strength to keep on going a day at a time and faith? What is, as the hymn writer wrote, the bright hope for tomorrow that inspires generation after generation of believers to keep on trusting in Jesus? This is kind of the bit where the sermon wasn't behaving, so I might go off text, but we'll see. The more I've read and thought about this over the last few weeks, the more I've become aware that our understanding of hope can be distorted into some very individualised understandings. Hope can be seen as all about what happens to me when I die. Now, that is an important part of hope, and that's for sure. But the more I've pondered the scriptures, the more I've sensed that it's just a tiny element within hope And actually, it's not the ultimate goal of hope, which is not just communal, but universal. In other words, there is a place for hope that is about me and my soul, but that is to be set within a much bigger whole for the whole of creation. Micah's vision with which we began our service is just one example of the many Hebrew scriptures that help us to imagine what the reign of God inaugurated by Christ will look like when it reaches its final consummation. Now, these are visions recorded by humans, so they're never going to fully capture this unimaginable new creation. But they do carry an incredible message of hope. Sin, death, war, sorrow, disease, disaster. These do not and cannot have the final word, because if I can borrow a title of a book, in the end, love wins. One of the ways we can understand the events of Calvary is that the God who is perfect love chose to draw into the very heart of God's being all that is damaged and distorted, all that deals death, all that destroys hope. We live with a mystery, a tension. We believe this to be so, that those events have done it all once and for good. But an experience that says, well, not yet, not yet, things are still not right. In this not yet time, the fact is that people we love will die. And so we need that resurrection hope that they are held safe in God's care until at the end of time itself, they and we will be part of the new creation. I was trying to think this week, where can I find the concrete examples of people who have expressed this kind of hope? We'll all have people who we think that person kind of did it, but the two that sprang to mind for me were both very much in the public eye. Martin Luther King in the USA, and Nelson Mandela, people whose dreams strengthened them through enormous challenges. It's a bit kind of a, a cliche, isn't it? Martin Luther saying, I have a dream. But it was dream, it was his hope, it was his faith that inspired him to work for what he did. But the more I thought about it, the more I began to think of people who you won't have heard of, who somehow lived that hope in their lives. And I suspect that we can all think of people whose hope in Christ prompted them to make a difference, whether it was in peacemaking, 
whether it was in humanitarian aid, whether it was in missionary work, whatever it is, this people who believed in this vision of the new heaven and the new earth, who said, I'm going to do something for that now, because that's my hope. Life isn't easy. We all have our struggles and our sorrows because the world is disordered and damaged. And yes, there will always be those questions for which we can't find the answers because life doesn't even fit our best understandings. I don't know why babies get sick and die. I don't know why there are natural disasters. But there are things where I can make a difference and there are things where we can all Perhaps Paul leaves us with some very wise words as he says, do not become weary in doing what is right. Don't give up. Keep going. My prayer has to be that our hope in Christ provides us with strength enough to withstand the storms of life as together we live that hope and assert the faithfulness of a God who is love. Amen. This is our time to show and tell the good news. You must not become weary in doing good and doing what is right. Let us pray and let us listen for God. We pray for others, bringing to mind some of those who we know are in need. Those children for whom we have brought our gifts this morning. Those children who will benefit from this weekend's Children in Need events. Those children and adults who desperately await help in the Philippines. those who continue to endure terror and violence in Syria, in Libya, in Tibet, in Palestine, in Nigeria. those who are trafficked and enslaved throughout the world, from factories in Asia to farms in Scotland and England. And those whose need may be known only to us as individuals.
And it is in this context this morning, Lord, that we pray for ourselves. That we encourage each other. Renewing our own hope in the power of showing and telling good news. That we support each other. Renewing our communal strength so that we do not become weary of doing good and of doing what is right. And so in this moment, let us, before God, think of each other in this community represented here this morning. Let us reflect on how we encourage and support those we know. Let us reflect on how we can show and tell the good news to all who are in need, including ourselves. And let us reflect on something new that we can offer, that I can offer in this community. Loving God, in the landscape of our life together here, we pray that you will raise up the flower of blossoming life. Give us delight in the unexpected, the sound of a song in the midst of silence, the sound of silence in the midst of our busy life, the unexpected act of grace the unanticipated word of hope so that we may be your people of adventure and vision, of courage and of hope in a world of need. Lord, where our prayers lead, may our action follow. And we continue our prayers in the giving of an offering. Go with us, God of hope, into a world that troubles us, a world that Christ has already redeemed, and bless us with a hope that refuses to be thwarted and the strength to face the challenges of this week and every week.